So let's go to Romans chapter 12. We spent a lot of time in Romans 12, so this week and next week we're done with Romans 12, okay? So we'll move on in the book of Romans a little, at a little quicker pace than we have uh, so far in this particular chapter. But uh, I want to talk about um, genuine love today. What, what is genuine love? What does that look like? How is it defined? Um, how is that lived out in our lives, whether it's we're trying to love our friends and family or we're trying to love our enemies uh, those who don't speak well of us or treat us well. well. What does the Word of God have to say? So really the context of the remainder of this chapter is found back up in chapter 12 and verse 1 where he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of God's mercies, in light of all that God has done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so Paul makes a transaction or transition from the, the uh, theological part of this book, Romans 1 through 11, into the more practical part of this book, beginning in chapter 12. And he says, listen, once we understand the greatness and the majesty and the magnificence of our salvation, he says, in essence, the only logical response to that is that we would offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. This is, this is our act of worship, he calls it. He says this is, this is in keeping with God's will and his plan and his purpose for our life. So worship is more than gathering here on Sunday morning. We're coming to worship service. Worship is more than praying. Worship, in its essence, is found in our obedience to God and to his word and to his will and to his divine pleasure. And so Paul says, he's saying in essence, listen, God, uh, I'm offering myself to you. I want you to use me up. I want you to use me as you want to use me. I'm laying myself on the altar because in light of all that you've done for me, not only in the past, all that you're doing for me in the present, all that you have in store for me in the future, in light of that, the only reasonable response is that I would hold nothing back from you, but I would offer myself up totally over to you so that you might use me in any way that you seem fit. And so we surrender our lives on, he says, a daily basis. Service is not contained to the walls of this church. So when you're outside the walls of this church, anywhere that you are in your family, offer your body up as a living sacrifice. As husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your, your husbands as in the Lord. There are a lot of things that we can do as parents on a regular basis, and yes, even children, places where we work, the people we come into contact with on a regular basis, and yes, even those quiet, uh, uh, you know, crazy, wild family members that you have that you try to avoid on a regular basis, we can even respond to them in a way that is different than we did before we encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says the first sign that God is working in you is that you begin to think differently. He says, begin renewing your mind. This is what's going to lead to the transformation of your life, is the renewed mind. Renewal means renovation. God is renovating your mind to think in a different way than you ever thought before. And so for most of you, would testify that when you got saved uh, and you were, you know, in a Bible study group or maybe coming to church or reading the Word of God on your own, that all of a sudden, God's Spirit began to take the Word of God, and He began changing the way you think. 
You didn't really think about that, but you begin thinking differently, and when you begin to think differently, you begin to behave differently, right? And so God's in this process of renewing, renovating our minds, which leads to a renovation of our character. And the character that God is developing within us is called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, um, self-control. All of us need self-control in our lives because we were used to walking, living according to the pattern of thinking and the pattern of actions according to our flesh, our self-desires, that which is pulling hell up. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that we can only live in one of two ways, according to the flesh, according to the spirit. Now God's renovating my mind so that my mind begins to change, my character begins to change as God's developing the fruit of the spirit, and it, it leads to a change in the way that I live my life. Why? Because the spirit is transforming my mind, that transforms my character, that transforms my actions so that I'm living in the spirit, bringing hell down rather than hell have. Hell, or heaven down rather than hell up. So Paul says, this is what's happening within us. And one of the ways we display this is through the way that we, we love, through the way that we serve. And so he says in the remaining verses in the first part of this chapter, he dives into what we spent several weeks on. Hey, let me talk about the Spirit's gifts to you, how God has uniquely shaped you in order to serve him in the world, in ministry, and in, on your mission. So ministry is what we do inside of the church. Mission is what we do outside of the walls of the church. God has uniquely gifted you and shaped you both for ministry and for mission. And when we start living that out in our lives, something fundamentally begins to change inside of us. There is a zeal, there is a passion, there is a fire that God ignites within us that pushes us forward even when we don't feel like it. And he says this is the key to finding fruitfulness and fulfillment in your life is by serving how God has uniquely shaped you in the kingdom and in ministry within the kingdom. So when you string this together, a surrendered heart leads to a renewed mind that leads to a development of character and a changed life that is now going to be driven by agape love. Not just any kind of love, agape love, which is unconditional love. And so it's no accident that Paul finishes this chapter talking about love because this is what he does. Remember when we studied the gifts of the Spirit, we noted in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Chapter 13 is the love chapter. Chapter 14, he talks about the gifts of the Spirit again. And in that love chapter, he says, listen, if we do all these things but do not have love, we are like a clanging cymbal. We are like, you know, a horrible sound. We, we are not really functioning as God has called us to function. So let's talk about for the next couple of weeks about this issue of love. And here's why. Because Jesus said the single most defining characteristic that you are a disciple of mine is how we love one another. And how we love others. Not just one another within the context of your immediate family or our church family, but outside the walls of this church with people with whom we have contact with and we're rubbing shoulders with. He's saying, listen, your love for one another, he told his disciples, is how the world will recognize that you belong to me. At the end of the day, 
what convinces the world about the truth and the power of the gospel is not our defense of the faith, but it is our love for one another. That's what convinces the world that what you have or what you claim to have in Christ is actually authentic. So Paul talks about this love in three categories. We're going to hit category one today because it has seven points that he fleshes out, and we'll hit the next two uh, next week. So here's what he says. Genuine love exhibits sincerity. Genuine love always exhibits sincerity. He says in chapter 12, verse 9, love must be sincere. In other words, don't pretend that you love others, really love them. That's the New Living Translation. I, I like that. Don't pretend that you love people, but you have to actually love them. For example, let's say you are at a gathering. Maybe it's a, it was your, your, uh, your workplace's Christmas party, and uh, you're standing on one side of the room, and you see somebody, it's a co-worker on the other side of the room, and in your mind, you know you don't like them. In fact, you, you, don't, you dislike them a lot because... Maybe they have said something about you. Maybe they spread rumors about you in the workplace. And, you know, you, you just really, really don't like them at all. But, man, I'm a believer. i got to be civilized. I can't just walk up and throat punch them. You know, I just can't give them a piece of my mind and tell them what I really think about them. And so I'm going to be a, a little more civilized than that, and I'll find a way to kind of skirt around them. And so inside you really have a distaste for them. You really have a disdain. There's really um, some bitterness that's kind of, you know, you're angry with them, and, and now that anger is giving way to, to resentment and bitterness, and maybe it's even gone so far, the unforgiveness, because this may have been going on for a long, long time. And so you, you, when you see them and when you interact with them, you act like you like them. Like, oh, it's so good to see you again. Oh, it's been such a long time since we've talked. You're lying. You're pretending to love them, but you don't really love them. What you really want to do is you want to throat punch them. Can I get a witness? Amen. All right, so all right. We're all on the same page here. <laughs> Genuine love goes deeper and wider than, um, than surface actions. In describing love, love sincerity, Paul gives us a picture of what sincere love really looks like and how it responds regardless of who the person is that is in front of us, right? So he gives us seven characteristics of love that is actually sincere. And he says, first of all, that sincere love should be without hypocrisy. When he says love is sincere, that's the, really the Greek word that he's using. It's the, displaying hypocrisy means being two-faced, right? In the Greek world, it was used in the theater where people would play multiple characters and they would hold different masks in front of their face. And so, you, you know, you're, you're one way with this group of people, but you're totally different with another group of people. And, and you're, you know, you're one way with this situation and that circumstance, and you're totally someone else. So he says, let love be, let love be genuine. And so he's comparing and contrasting love that is genuine as opposed to disingenuous. That's what he means when he says love is sincere, it's without hypocrisy, it is, it is genuine, it is sincere, it is not disingenuous. There are people who will say and do things that look like they're really being loving, but actually their motive is 
They're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to coerce you. They're trying to get you to trust them because they want to use you for their own self-interest. Now, this happens in bars all across Columbus every Friday and Saturday night. You have a pretty young lady who walks into a bar with a group of friends. There's a guy who ca she captures his eye. So he goes over to her, and he starts talking with her. And, and, and not long into the conversation, oh, you're so pretty, you're so smart, you're so cute, you're, you're, you're just amazing. And he's, he's, he's just using all of his words of flattery because his motive isn't a long-term relationship. His motive is, can I get you to sleep with me tonight? That's his only goal. That's his only motive. And so that is not sincere love. That is not genuine love. That is lust. That is hypocrisy. That is saying to this young woman, I, I, I really want you to begin liking me because I really think we could have a long-term relationship as opposed to I really just want a one-night stand. All right, so this is, what, this is the picture that Paul is painting, is that our love is to be genuine. And listen, you can manipulate people for your own self-interest which is what that individual is doing. And if you can find a young lady who has daddy issues, she's even far more vulnerable than if she doesn't. That's a whole nother sermon. Love is doing, love is doing what is in the best interest, if it's genuine, of somebody else. In other words, I'm going to love you and treat you in a loving way. I'm not expecting anything returned from you. Agape love is I'm loving you in a way that is contributing to your best interest. And so if there's something I can do, if I can love you in such a way, then I will choose to do that, even at my own expense. So love is sometimes what we feel. But love, agape love, is more than what we feel. It is an action. You know, love has feelings attached, but what God is saying that agape love is more than an emotion. It is an action. It is acting towards somebody in a loving way, regardless of what your feelings might be. This is why Jesus could say to us, love your enemies. Well, how can I love my enemies? I don't even like them. Well, I didn't ask you if you like them. I said, I want you to love your enemies. He says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to do good towards them. Why? Because I'm wanting you to display me to that person whom you consider your enemy. Because love is genuine. It is without hypocrisy. That is what love does. So we just don't, you know, can I override my feelings with obedience to the will of God? Absolutely you can. I can absolutely respond to somebody in a loving way who just, uh, in, you know, kind of dressed me down with their verbal speech. You've probably had that happen to you. I've had it happen to me multiple times over my span of ministry where somebody comes in, they're just all hot and they're all fired up and they just light into you and it's like the shrapnel, you know, you just left with shrapnel all over the place and you sit back and you say, well, how am I going to respond to this person? Now, I can choose to respond by pushing back at them, but when you push against somebody, guess what they do? They push back. This is why the book of Proverbs says, listen, when you're going to get in an argument with somebody, it's very important about things like the timing of it and the tone of voice that you're using and the circumstance that you're in. It's not that you are a doormat, but how I respond goes a long way as to whether or not this situation is going to be reconciled. If we're just screaming at each other and storm out of the room, nothing is solved. But you're screaming at each other. You're not even listening to what the person is saying. You're only thinking about how you're going to 
be, you know, what rebuttal you're going to bring into the conversation. You're not even listening to what the person's saying any longer. You're just all fired up about what you want to say in return. So love, love takes, love takes that all into account. And those who, whose love is disingenuous, Jesus called people like that whitewashed tombstones. And this is how Jesus often encountered the scribes and the Pharisees who appeared to be loving, like they really loved the, the, you know, the people of Israel, and they really had their best interest in, at heart when they didn't. Jesus knew their motives. He called them whitewashed tombstones, which means, look, you all look beautiful on the outside, but you're full of death on the inside. And the closer you get to their heart, the more stench you can smell. It's kind of like having a mouse that dies behind your wall, right? There's not enough for breeze to quench that stench, right? You've got to retrieve that dead thing in order for it to, to have a pleasant uh, aroma later on. And so no, no amount of pretending is going to help us love in such a way. If love is going to be genuine, if love is going to be without hypocrisy, that means I have to cultivate within me a heart that has the love of Christ within it so that I respond as Jesus responded. Did Jesus become a doormat? No. But he always responded in a way that brought love into the situation and into the circumstance. Do people always respond positively if you bring love into a volatile situation? No. At times, people would pick up stones. They would pick up stones. They were going to stone Jesus to death. They didn't like what he had to say. Because love also brings truth into the scenarios we'll talk about in a moment. What God, Paul says is, listen, if we are going to get along with each other, if we're going to get along with other people, before we fire back at somebody, we need to sit back and say, you know what? Is there truth in what they said? Is there truth in this situation? How can I process this? Let God process it through me before I come back and with a response. Now, you may respond at that moment in time, but it's not going to be in a way that you're pushing back against somebody because you want your, your love to be genuine. You want reconciliation. You want unity and harmony in the relationship. The second characteristic he gives us, he says, our love should be grounded in truth. In truth, he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. That word hate, some of your translations say abhor. That means to hate exceedingly, to be horrified, that we should hate anything that is evil, anything that brings harm into your life, the life of your family, or the life of your relationships. We should absolutely exceedingly hate what is evil. Love means you cannot tolerate on any level that which God has determined is evil. Love just won't do that. You cannot tolerate evil in you, in the people around you, or in the world. So he says, hate, abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. And that word hold fast means to be glued to what is good. In other words, you'll note that Paul says, love is established in two categories, good and evil. This is important. We've lost these two categories in our country. Instead, we have tolerance, not discernment. We tolerate everything now. We do not discern what is good and what is evil. 
We've just come up with a level of tolerance that accepts everything as being pleasant and being good, and so long as I'm not hurting you or affecting you in some way. But that's impossible because our lives have such a rippling effect that we're always uh, intersecting with the hearts and the lives of people around us. And so we don't want to call things right or wrong, good and evil, black and white, truth and lies, that which is of the Lord, that which is against the Lord, but to be discerning, we need to say that there are some things that are good and there are some things that are evil. That is binary, and we're binary because that's what God is. God says there are some things that are evil, and I hate them. Go to Proverbs chapter 6. He gives you a list of things that he hates. He says, these six things I hate, and there is a seventh thing that I hate. And it's all wrapped up in around things that are evil that bring harm into the lives of others. And so if we don't discern between right and wrong, truth and lies, what is holy and what is unholy, then we lack discernment. Where do we find our discernment? We find our discernment in the truth of God's Word, which is why it is so important that we are constantly filling our minds with the Word of God so that the Spirit of God develops a spirit of discernment within us as to what is good and bad, what is truth and untruth, what is good and what is evil. Listen, if you love someone or something, then you hate that which threatens to destroy them. Do you not? I mean, if you love your children, don't you hate predators that come against your children? If you love life, you hate death. If you love truth, you hate lies. If you love the Holy Spirit, you hate demonic spirits. If you love um, marriage, you hate adultery. We hate those things that have the potential of bringing harm into our lives. So if you really love your life and if you really love your walk and your relationship with God, then God would say, there are some things you need to hate. There are some things you should never tolerate in your life. And we might want to put a, you know, a bumper uh, across the tops of our TV sometimes because we view things and we watch things that if Jesus were sitting beside us, he would say, you know, I absolutely hate those things. Because they are undermining your life. They're undermining your relationship. They're undermining your marriage, your walk with God. And so if God hates things like pride and lying and bringing people together to arc, you know, architect plans to do harm and publicly causing division, then there are some things that we need to hate and some things that we need to love. He says we need to love and we grab hold of those things which are good, which is what Paul said in Philippians 4.8, those things that are good and, and lovely and worthy. Those are the things that we are to think upon, that we are to fill our minds and our hearts with. A love that won't warn against the dangers of evil ultimately is not love. You know, when you tell the truth to someone, what is your motivation? Is it because you love them, or is it something selfish? For example, a parent who refuses to, to discipline their children. Well, that's the most unloving thing you can do. And so, a lot of times, parents refuse to discipline their children because they're more interested in their children's affection than they are anything else. So I, I will not discipline them. I'm not going to show them that in a loving way. I'm not going to root that evil out of their lives. 
because, you know, I, I want to be known as the, the fun parent. I want to be known as the, the good parent. I want to be known as, you know, the, the best uncle ever. And so you're afraid of losing their affection more than your love for them. Jesus loved us enough. Jesus loved the people he came into contact enough that he spoke the truth to them. And they so disliked the truth, they killed him because of it. But he spoke it anyways. Because sometimes truth has to triumph what is being tolerated in someone's life if you're going to help them move forward in their walk and their relationship with Christ. This is what accountability is all about. This is why the Bible is replete with accountability in our lives. You need to be accountable to somebody because all of us have moments of blindness in our lives. All of us have moments of tolerance in our lives. And when you become tolerant of something, become kind of dead to that thing, and we're grieving the Holy Spirit, we're quenching the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God is trying to you know, get a hold of us and convict us, but there's so much scar tissue, we're not hearing and we're not responding, and sometimes God brings somebody into your life, and they're the truth teller that God uses in your life to say, hey, wait a minute, stop. Do you see what's going on? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see the danger in this relationship you're establishing with that young man or woman in the workplace who is not your spouse? You need somebody like that in your life, and so do I. None of us are exempt because that's what love does. Love is grounded in God's truth. Number three, our love should, be, should feel like family. He says, goes on to say, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, he uses two words when he says brotherly love. Phileo, which is a friendship. Storge, which is more of an affection. And so what Paul is actually saying, if you were to put it out in the vernacular of the Greek context, is he's saying is we ought to be lovingly loving. Lovingly loving. In other words, our love for each other ought to feel like a family because that's what we are, right? When you were born physically into the world, you were born into a family. When you were born again in the kingdom of God, you were born into God's family. And then you chose to attach yourself to a local church family. Now, here's one of the things I tell people in our class 101 all the time. If you're looking for a perfect family, eh, you came to the wrong place, all right? Were you born into a perfect family? Isn't it true that we will put up with more stuff from our siblings and our family members and our relatives that we would not put up with anyone else? Why? Because they're family. You know the adage, Blood's thicker than water, right? So I'm going to put up with this. I don't want to put up with it. I don't want to put up with it because, after all, we are family. And this is what Paul is saying is that we ought to be lovingly loving to those who are in the context of our family. For example, if my child, you know, let's say one of my daughters growing up and she develops a habit or an attitude or whatever it is, and I just becomes unbearable and intolerable, and I go up to her and say, hey, I just want you to know, babe, uh, this just can't go on any longer. You're out of the family. I've got security coming, escorting you out of the house. We're barring the door. You're not allowed back in. Would you do that to your daughter, your son? Probably not, especially if they're underage. Now, if they're 30 years old, still living at home, and 
just, you know, won't work and just you, want you to supply everything for them, yeah, I, well, you kick them to the curb, right? They're an adult now. You got to use some wisdom here. But we put up with things in our family and we deal with issues in our family, but we don't want to abandon our family because we're having difficulties and we're having problems. Every family has those. We, we, bring, we, we pull together because we love one another and we pull together and we seek to resolve the issues that are between us. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's supposed to be like that in the church. We have one another's back because we are family, right? We defend one another. We stick up for one another. We don't gossip about each other through prayer requests uh, because we want somebody else to know what it is you're going through. No, we, in a loving way, we, we come alongside of you and say, you know what, uh, I can't solve your problems. We want to be a burden lifter, not a burden giver. Right? This is what Paul is, in essence, saying to us. We want to lift somebody's burden, and we come alongside of a person who's being burdened by something, whatever that might be, and we say, in essence, how can I help you? What do you need? How can I come alongside of you and, and maybe take some of the load off of you? How, how can I lift the burden? How can I encourage you? How can I be a blessing to you as you're taking this journey in your life and you're dealing with the issues that you are dealing with? That is what that's what love does. Love is willing to come alongside and, and walk with somebody. Now, here's what I know about all of us. All of us, we are carrying a variety of different burdens. I don't know if there's many moments in your life that you're not carrying some kind of burden. And sometimes we hide those burdens and we conceal those burdens, but it is up to you who are hiding and concealing that sometimes somebody can see it in you, they can see it in your countenance, but more often than not, you're carrying that on the inside, and now you're trying to love in a hip hypocritic way, right? You come up, how, how are things going in your life? Oh, everything's fine, man. Great, better, couldn't be better. But you're carrying such a burden that's so weighing you down. Listen, you need to pick up a phone. You need to call a friend. You need to, you need to call somebody that you're walking with in this church together where you have friendships and say, hey, I'm carrying a burden. I just can't do this by myself anymore. I need you to help me. I, here's what you can do for me. Here's how you can help me. Here's how you can unburden me. And I'll carry some of the load until I, I get the strength of the Lord back and, and I'm able to push forward in this process in which I find myself in, which brings us to our another um, characteristic. Our love should recognize everyone's inherent worth to God. He, he goes on to say, honor one another above yourselves. To honor somebody means to have a high appraisal, to appraise their value, their worth. I don't know how many of you have ever watched the uh, Antiques Roadshow. And so these uh, antiques roadshow, people will find things in their attic or maybe in their barn or their garage, or it's a family heirloom, and they bring it into these appraisers. These people are experts in the area of, you know, um, whether glassware or other items, and this expert looks at this product that has been brought to them, and he assesses the value of that product. And some people bring in things that they think are just huge value, right? Like, oh, this is going to be worth, you know, $100,000. And if only find out it's worth maybe 1000 bucks at best. Some people bring in things they thought, well, I, I, didn't, I don't think it's worth much, but I, I wanted to see what it was worth. And end up they, they have something that is very unique and rare, and it's worth like $100,000. And they're like blown away. 
And so what Paul says is when we honor each other, we honor each other out of the position that God has put us in because we are all people of value and we are all people of divine worth. Something is no more valuable than what you're willing to pay for it. And since Jesus was willing to pay for you with his own life, that means you are of extreme value to him. When the Pharisees criticized Jesus for hanging around you know, tax collectors and sinners, that's when Jesus launched into his parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And what Jesus was saying through all three of those parables is, you have never locked eyes on anyone who is not valuable to God. So honor people. Hold them in high esteem. Hold them as a person of value and worth. The world is full of experts, of people tearing other people down. That's easy to do, right? You can rip somebody on Facebook or social media. You can rip people in a lot of different ways. That's the most unloving thing you can do. It's easy to do that. And you can hide behind, you know, the, 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 the walls of your house as you're doing this, and you don't have to look at them face-to-face, -face, which is why social media can be a wonderful platform, but it can also be a very dangerous platform in that people can just rip you and they're you know saying things to you and about you and you don't even know who they are necessarily there's a name on there perhaps but maybe you have or have not met them for whatever reason you you said hey yeah i'll be a friend of yours and it's it's from a secluded place that they're doing such a thing so paul says hey let's be counterculture here when no one else is like honoring your boss at work how about you honor him? He might be dead wrong. You may not even like him. But you honor the position. Now watch this. God says when you honor the position, he will honor you. In the Ten Commandments, what did he say? Honor your father and your mother. And if you do that, you bring God into the situation. You may have had a horrible father and mother. I don't know what your family life was like. But if you honor their position... God steps in because in the unfolding of that command, he says things like, listen, um, God's going to honor you in response, and it's the first command with blessing. If you honor your father and mother, it will go well for you, and you'll be healthy and joyful and prosperous here on earth. And prosperity doesn't mean just money, all right? God's going to give you a long life, not that you don't ever get sick. But he's saying God will honor you in return if you honor what he honors. As we're going to talk about him when we get to chapter 13, he's going to talk about submitting ourselves to those authorities over us. We are to honor them, their position, and if we honor the position, we bring God in the situation, and then all of a sudden things begin to change. The next one, he says we, not only we do love like a family, that we should recognize everybody's inherent worth, our love should be rooted in enthusiastic passion. Now, I, I love this one. Never be, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. Never lacking in zeal. And sometimes we give our zeal, our passion, a pass, right? Well, I'm not very passionate today because, you know, my allergies are bothering me and I've got a headache. And, I just, uh, and we got all kinds of reasons why. We're just not passionate on this particular day. But here's what I know about you. 
Now, when I was in the James Cancer Center in the hospital after my surgery, I spent four days in the ICU, and then they moved me upstairs. You know where they moved me upstairs? It was like the penthouse suite. This room was huge, and, and I looked out the window, and it overlooked Ohio State Stadium. I mean, like right there in front of me. It's like right there. Here's what I know. We can have, be having a horrible day, but if you're having a horrible day, and I called you up and said, hey, I got some extra tickets to the Ohio State football game. How about coming with me? Yeah, man, I'll go. And then we're going to get in that stadium, and we're going to get caught up in the enthusiasm of the crowd, and you're going to be acting like a wild Comanche. All of a sudden, your zeal, your passion came back tenfold. I'm like looking at you like, man, I ain't never seen you this passionate about anything. Isn't it amazing? We, when we are passionate about something, we give ourselves over to it lock, stock, and barrel. Do we not? I mean, people, you know, right, so this group here in our church has been trying to get me to play pickleball forever, so I've do, do, I have div, <laughs> dove into the pool of pickleball. So my wife calls me on Wednesday night. She says, hey, babe, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm playing in the kitchen. And she, she translated that as, oh, you're fixing dinner for me. Wonderful. No, uh, in pickleball, there's what's called the kitchen. And so, you know, it's like at the front of the net. And you, anyway, so that's where I was playing. I wasn't technically lying. I just didn't define what kitchen I was in. Right, so, so you become passionate about something. It's amazing how things go out the room. Out the, out the window. So pay attention, he says, to your passion for Christ. Because one day, if you don't, one day, you're going to wake up and you will have lost that passion. Because, And here's why. Because you've not cultivated. If you're not cultivating your walk with God, if you're not cultivating your passion, you will start pushing things aside and an hour turn into a day, into a week, into a month, into a year, into a decade... And you're going to wonder, what happened to my passion for God? So rather than getting up on Sunday morning and being passionate, with full of zeal to come to church, it's like you just kind of like, you know, I'm walking in, like I haven't had any coffee, and like, don't talk to me. This is the way I am in the morning. Don't talk to me, I haven't had coffee. You know, so rather than coming in church passionate, we barely even make it here on time. Right, so we lose something because we're not cultivating something. He says it should be fervent. That means to be boiling red hot, spilling over. Listen, when Jesus addressed the church at Laodicea, he says, I'd rather you be cold, I'd rather you be red hot, but don't give me no lukewarmness. And he said to the church at Ephesus, I know the deeds that you're doing, the good things. I know you're following a great theology, but you have left your first love. What was his prescription to that church? Remember what it was like when you were passionate about me. Repent of your non-passion and return to what you once had. I believe there are two main causes why we lose our passion for God. Number one, we are tolerating Sin. We are tolerating some evil in our life that we should never tolerate or you're harboring unforgiveness towards people. Nothing will quench the spirit, grieve the spirit quicker, or drain passion out of your life for Christ than those two things. And we'll talk about those more at length next week. He says we ought to have this fervent love and then it, it fleshes itself out, right? How, how does it flesh itself out? Never be... Lacking of zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. When I'm passionate about the Lord, when I'm red hot in the spirit, then I choose to serve. I choose to engage. I choose to be involved. 
because that is what keeps me stirred up. That is what keeps me fired up. I've been a pastor for over 35 years, and I'm just as passionate about what I do today as I did the day that I stepped into my first church. Why? There's not always, it's not been like, oh, it's just like, eh. No, it's been, eh, 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 eh. Right, So when I find myself lacking passion, when I find my zeal beginning to wane, then I have to step back and say, look, what is causing this? What, what, is, what am I tolerating in my life? What have I lost? What have I given up? What have I stopped cultivating that, it, that has brought me to the place that I no longer am as passionate about the things of the Lord as I once was? And so when God stirs up that passion and that fervor, man, you want to get engaged and what it is God is doing in the world around you. Amen? Amen. Right? See, this is what holds you, which keeps you, because ministry can be frustrating, it can be draining, it can be discouraging. Sometimes you have to pull back and recharge. I get that, I understand that, but you want to make sure if you are pulling back that you're doing what is necessary to recharge you, because if you're not, then you just keep pulling back further, further, and further, and... A week turns into a month and into a year and into a decade of your life and maybe all of your life. So he says we are, we are love is rooted in enthusiastic passion. And number six, our love is to be displayed through hope and prayer during times of affliction. So he uses three words here in verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. When tribulation comes, how are we to handle it? Hope, patience, prayer. What is my hope in? My hope is in Christ. My hope is in the fact that I'm not taking this journey by myself. My hope in this is in the fact that no matter what I face in this life, it is labeled temporary. That nothing lasts forever because my life is not going to last forever here on planet Earth. I'm moving on to the home that Christ has gone and prepared for me. So no matter how deep, dark the valley you may be traveling, it is a temporary valley. You are not traveling it alone, and God is doing something in your life, whether you acknowledge it or see it or not. God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a pain. He says that, listen, to those who love me and are called according to my purpose, I use all things to conform you to the image of Christ. And as we are making this journey and we are growing in character and becoming more like Jesus, we have to exercise patience. Oh, we hate patience. How many of you pray for patience? You know patience is a fruit of the Spirit. See, if I'm an impatient person, that's why some of you, when you get up tomorrow morning and you drive to work, you have a horn ministry. Uh, you're going to honk your horn and everybody ticks you off because they're driving too slow, they cut you off, uh, all of these things. Nah, 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 you know, we're just, they're driving to 10 miles below the speed limit. Nah, 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 and this is, this is not patience, right? One of the things I know that God is, he is, he is patient. So when you're going through the troubles and the tri trials and the pains and the, and the problems of life, what sustains you through this is prayer. Prayer is what's going to sustain you. Watch this. Prayer is the way that you process the pain. What God's teaching you. That's why when I began my journey with cancer, I began journaling. I be, you know, I've always been a 
a person of prayer, but I began journaling. My wife is a journaler. She's got, I, I can't tell you how many journals, uh, probably 50 of them. Um, I said, what, do you, what, do we, what are we going to do with these after you die? She said, burn them. So that's what she tells me, burn them. Uh, so, so I started journaling, and I started blogging about what I was journaling as a means by which I was processing what was happening in my life. And so as you have hope and prayer through your tribulation, what, what God's will is, is that, listen, he wants to increase he wants to increase your pain threshold. So as you're processing, this is what God's in the process of doing. He's increasing your pain threshold. Well, why would God do that? Because if you want to have greater character, you have to increase your pain threshold. If you want to have greater ministry, you want to have to increase your pain threshold because that's the way God develops our character and that's the way he, he processes us into a greater area of ministry. If you read through the Bible, whether Jesus himself or anybody else that God used, as God built character in a person's life, he increased their, their pain threshold. And those who were used by God in the mightiest ways are those through whom God ratcheted up their pain threshold. Because they were patient and they were processing and they were waiting in hope upon what God was going to do in them and through them. God did incredible, miraculous things, and he's still doing the same today, if you will, if you allow him. And God will take what's potentially evil and use it for your good if you surround yourself in hope and in prayer. And you will be stronger than, listen, how many of you have ever faced something in your life and you thought, man, this is going to kill me before I get through this? We've all been there. But yet here you are. And you discover that God's grace is far deeper than you thought it was. And God's availability was more personal than you ever thought it was. And you anticipated what God is going to do now in your heart and your life as a result of what he has taken you through. The last one is our love should be expressed in tangible actions. How is that? He says in verse 13, Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. There are two things he says there. Generosity is a way of grace giving with no strings attached. In other words, if I'm going to be generous to you, I do not do it with strings attached. I have no ulterior motive. I'm not giving to you so that you feel obligated to give back to me. I'm doing it because I love you. I, I'm doing it because you have a need. I'm doing it because you have a burden in your life. For example, and I don't talk much about the ministries I do that you know, nobody knows about in this church, maybe a few people, but uh, a couple years ago, uh, you know, Brian, my son-in-law, his Aunt Susie, uh, was diagnosed for the second time in her life with cancer, breast cancer, and um, so... We, 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 Brian and I said, hey, let's get the family together and let's go over and pray for her. And so we did. We, we had them bring her daughters and, and um, her sisters and, and everybody in the family. We spent time praying over her and with her. And so after we did that, she began her process through chemo. And as she progressed in chemo, she got weaker and weaker. And uh, it was brought to my attention that she could no longer go upstairs, which is where her bedroom was and which is where her bathroom was. 
They had a half bath, but it was inoperable. The toilet wasn't, wasn't working, and so I found out about that, and I said, I will come over and I will fix that for you. So I pulled the toilet up. I found out the flange underneath was bad, so it, what I thought would be an hour job ended up being about a four-hour job because I had to tear all the plumbing out and redo it and put the toilet in. So I do ministry like that for people. Why do I do that? I'm not expecting anything in return. I, didn't, I don't charge them. I didn't charge them for the parts. I just said, listen, this is my gift to you because I know you can't go upstairs any longer, and I want you to have a place that you feel comfortable. So they had another large room off the back where they built her a bedroom and so on and so forth. Now, I don't go around telling people about that. I'm only telling you today because this is what generosity does. It looks for ways that you can be generous towards somebody without expecting anything in return. It is grace giving. It is like I'm doing this because you have a need, I love you, and I want you to know I'm here for you. And so I stayed in contact with them. And when she was in her final hours of her life, her daughter called me and said, hey, my mom is asking if you would come up and be with us. And so I did. And during that time that I got at the hospital, my son-in-law, Brian, who's had such a burden for his Aunt Susie, was there leading her to the Lord in faith in Jesus Christ. She prayed to receive Jesus as her Lord and Savior there about a day before she passed away. Why? Because... I was generous. Maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe that's a part of it. But everything you do in the lives of people, God uses it as a stepping stone that might bring somebody to the gates of heaven through a relationship with Jesus Christ because you took the time to be generous. And then the last one is hospitality. Hospitality means welcoming a stranger or somebody who is an outsider. Every time somebody comes into our church who's never been here before, they're like a stranger. They're like an outsider, and they, they're thinking, you know, what's this church like? What do they do in there? We get this all the time. People drive by. I said, well, how did you come about coming to our church? Well, I was just driving by, and I was just like, well, I wonder what goes on inside of there. And people come. When they enter into our doors, they have all kinds of questions and fears, like, oh, when I get into the worship service, they're going to make me stand up, sit down. What are they going to make me do? And this is our opportunity to express hospitality to those around us, that we interact with them and we share with them and we just say hey we're so glad that you're here but there's another aspect of hospitality for example in your neighborhood when you see a u-haul truck come into your neighborhood be the weirdo guy or gal who goes up and actually introduces to the people who are moving in because they've got all kinds of questions like what's about the school system about utilities and where's the good restaurants and all these thousands of questions it is our opportunity to express hospitality to those who are new to our area. And so we look for those opportunities because that is, that is what love does. And so what Paul says in essence to us, it is only through faith in what God has done that we are empowered in what we ought to do. The fire of the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what God has done. In light of God's mercies, let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. And let us love others like Christ has loved us.